from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, through chapter 10, verse 4. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both with both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places, every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The word of the Lord. One of my favorite comics is called Strange Planet. Uh, it's where these aliens explain normal life on Earth, but often in ways that uh, make us humans sound really weird. Uh, take, for example, a suntan, right? Like, we wouldn't think twice about this, totally normal. But to an alien, we're really craving star damage. Hmm. And that makes you think, well, are we really craving star damage? Well, yes in a way, but also not quite. Sometimes when you think about it, the stuff that we talk about as Christians, for a lack of a better word, is kind of weird. 
But you know, as long as you're in a closed loop, you don't really know that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, as all close-knit communities develop their own set of terms and distinct language. But sometimes it's helpful to have someone from the outside point out how weird you might sound. Sometimes it's helpful to encounter an alien. Now, I couldn't find any extraterrestrial aliens, but last week we got what might have been the next closest thing, a Catholic theologian. A number of you got to experience the spiritual retreat led by Dr. Anita Vincent, and I am told that she enjoyed you as well. But as she was looking through some of the hymns that we Protestants have, nothing but the blood of Jesus, covered in the blood, are you washed in the blood? There is a fountain filled with blood. And she's looking at lyrics like these. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. And she was like, man, I thought the Catholics were supposed to be into the blood of Jesus. Whew, you Protestants are weird. Touché. But it raises a very interesting point. Why do Protestants, specifically more evangelical and American Protestants, really get excited about all this blood? Are we really that into the blood of Jesus? Well, yes, in a way, but also not quite. The reason for our emphasis on blood historically can be connected to two atonement theories. That is, two theories about how Jesus' death on the cross reconciled us back to God. Now, there's about seven of these theories, but the ones that are applied today are called substitution theory, or sorry, satisfaction theory and penal substitution theory. Satisfaction theory was developed in the medieval era by the Catholic Church, and penal substitution theory was developed during the Reformation by the Protestant reformers. And it's really more of just a hardcore version of the satisfaction theory. So here's our super simplistic explanation underlying these two atonement theories. In them, it is said that our sin created either a debt or crime before God. And God, to be just, cannot ignore our crime or debt created by our sin. Someone has to pay for what has happened. Fortunately for us, Jesus steps in as the debt or punishment and take our place. And so how does Jesus pay it, the debt? Well, with his shed blood on the cross. How does Jesus take the punishment? Well, with his shed blood on the cross. Now, you might think all this talk about blood sounds pretty weird, but the importance of blood for the ancient people was something that was almost universally agreed upon, and even for the Jewish people. For example, let's look again at our first reading today, Leviticus 17.11 in the Old Testament, which is where our likely author Apollos is referencing today. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In fact, Judaism from its earliest stages of religious development became a system that functioned heavily around bloody animal sacrifices. 
But before you want to cast judgment on this, there actually are some very logical reasons for that. One, this is a progressive ethical injunction against human sacrifice. It was not uncommon in ancient civilizations. In fact, it was probably common for religions to include some practice of human sacrifice, including child sacrifice. Because the idea is that you wanted to offer up something pure and innocent to the gods. And so when the Jewish codes call for animal sacrifices instead, it acknowledges the deep human psychology around blood sacrifices. There's something about us as humans that we want to reestablish our innocence and and somehow we recognize transculturally that life is in the blood. But it simultaneously prevents people from offering up other people or children to do it. Two... The bloodiness of sacrifices was an incredibly helpful picture of the effects of sin. If I had any illusions 3,000 years ago that sin was somehow not a big deal, these kinds of sacrifices would very quickly enlighten me. Sin cuts the community apart. Sin leads to death. Blood sacrifices taught you something about the seriousness of sin. Even the religious codes around unintentional interactions with blood, like the strange ones you might read about in the Old Testament, where if you touched a corpse or an open sore, then you were now made ritually unclean. Those codes weren't telling people that they were sinful or, or that they were bad, but they just had happened to touch something that was symbolic of sin's seriousness. And so in those codes, many of which pertain to blood, to be designated as unclean for a period of time just meant that you were now participating in a social reminder about how sin and the death it led to was the greatest enemy. In Judaism as a religion, everything about blood was designed to be this paradoxical and visceral reminder that sin is what God was against because death is what God is against. It was a practice of spiritual formation. But like most things in spirituality, when it becomes institutionalized, when it becomes part of a highly organized religion, this helpful symbolic practice evolved into a harmful literal dogma. This happened in Judaism, but as we can see in the more extreme edges of our two atonement theories, this can also happen in Christianity. Because when you get to Hebrews 9.15, even today, many Christians will feel that this passage only reinforces the idea that the only way God was able to forgive us is because Jesus shed his blood for our sins. Why? Because our author Apollos is going to connect the ancient Jewish religious system to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let's look at a key few verses strung together. Indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copy of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, what does this mean? Well, if you really like satisfaction or penal substitution theory, it's obvious. Jesus is the perfect blood sacrifice. After all, Apollos has introduced us already to this platonic philosophy of earthly shadow and heavenly reality. And so the blood of the animals could be the earthly shadow. And that points to the heaven reality of Jesus' blood. On top of that, the most consistent rhetorical device around Jesus so far as Apollos has given us has been one from lesser to better. Remember what we've seen so far. Here's a little reminder. However good you think scripture is at revealing what God is like, Jesus is better at revealing what God is like. However good you think angels are as a medium of God's power, Jesus is a better medium of God's power. However good you think Moses was as an authority for God's people, Jesus is a better authority for God's people. However good you think priests are at providing access to God, Jesus provides better access to God. And so, perhaps it only makes sense to say that however good you think the blood of animals are at forgiving sin, the blood of Jesus is better at forgiving sin. After all, animals need to be sacrificed again and again, whereas Jesus' sacrifice only needed to happen once. Slain animals only cover some people, whereas the slain Jesus covers all people. And so is Jesus the perfect sacrifice? Well, yes, in a way. But also, not quite. Because here's the problem. Why does God need blood to atone for sin? Why does God need blood to forgive us? I mean, God is God. God makes the rules, right? God could have said there is no forgiveness without the shedding of a single eyebrow hair. There you go, forgiven. So why blood? And here's where this problem about blood becomes problematic about the character, about the nature of God. It is not hard to imagine between verses like these that seem to emphasize blood for atonement and atonement theories that emphasize that God is so strongly out for justice to conclude that God is basically out for blood. That God will only be satisfied when God makes someone suffer and bleed and die. And if that's true, then how is the Christian idea of God any better than the ancient pagan gods who were only satisfied with human sacrifice? We find those cults morally abhorrent. So why is our God better? Oh, you might say, well, because Jesus satisfied God's desire for blood. Well, thank you, Jesus. You are my hero. That's great. But that doesn't change God's problematic desires in the first place. Or if aliens came down and we tried to explain all this to them, do you think they would get it? Or would they look at all our songs on blood? They would see our atonement theories and, and they would look at us and go, hmm, you human Christians are pretty weird. But embedded into Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 is something that might shock us. Our author Apollos is probably not saying 
that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. In fact, he might be saying the opposite. Now, how can we get that? Well, there's a few clues. First, in verses 15 and 17, he begins some wordplay in the Greek around this word covenant. In the Greek, the word covenant, diathekes, can also mean the will, as in the last will in testament. Apollo says that the death of Jesus is more like a good inheritance that I receive when a resigner of that will dies. And so the new covenant, and by extension the death of Jesus that inaugurated it, has a dynamic that is distinctive, that is a dynamic that is different from all previous Jewish covenants. It's still bloody, but for a different reason. The second clue, and the one that I think really starts to turn this whole passage on its head, is actually something we've already read, and it's a verse that seems to so strongly support that God wants blood sacrifice, verse 22. Indeed. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So does the Bible say that blood is needed for forgiveness? Well, yes, in a way. But also, not quite. Notice, does it say that God requires things to be purified with blood? No. What requires it? The law. The religious code and system of Judaism. The law has never been a perfect equivalent of God's will, but rather humanity's attempt to express God's will. Now you might be wondering, okay, is that some like liberal left field idea? No. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 19.8 when it comes to the Old Testament laws that existed on divorce. Not only Jesus, but you may remember from Apollos in the opening chapter of the book of Hebrews that he said that his own Jewish scripture was only communicating fragments of revealing what God is like. It is very important for us as followers of Jesus, to distinguish the difference between God's sovereign will and our humanity's attempt to express God's will. Otherwise, our theology will get really contradictory really fast. And so with that in mind, let's come back to verse 22. If the law required blood to purify things, but it wasn't necessarily God requiring this, then should we believe that God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins? No. That is also the law. This is a quote from the law in Leviticus 17.11. You see, Apollos isn't quoting Leviticus 17.11 in the Bible to hold it up. He's quoting Leviticus 17.11 to knock it down. And if you think that might be a stretch, well, he's already done this before, already a few chapters back in Hebrews 6. Apollos brings up Abraham, and at first you think he's going to compare him to Jesus because that's what he's been doing with all the other figures in the Hebrew Scriptures. But instead, Jesus' faithfulness is so superior to the inferior faithfulness of Abraham that he shifts the comparison altogether to go over to the dynamic promises of God. He seems to be doing something similar here again. 
Instead of a lesser to better argument, he's actually making an even stronger inferior to superior argument. You see, when we look deeper into God's word, Hebrews 9 and the opening of Hebrews 10 is about showing us that when it comes to forgiveness, the temple system wasn't just something that needed some improvements here or some tweaks over there, but that it was completely ineffective. It didn't need the perfect shedding of blood, but rather it didn't need any shedding of blood. And the strongest case we get for this is in chapter 10, verse 4, Apollo states unequivocally, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let that sink in. It's not that the shedding of blood didn't take away sins permanently, but that the shedding of blood didn't even take away sins temporarily. It's not that the shedding of blood didn't take away all sins, but that the shedding of blood didn't take away even any sins. The shedding of blood did nothing. And if the shedding of blood did nothing, the shedding of blood still does nothing. God did not need Jesus to pay our debts with his blood. God did not need to punish Jesus for our crimes by shedding his blood. Why? Because God was not out for blood. God has never been out for blood. In fact, nowhere in Hebrews does Apollos ever say that the blood of Jesus was a blood sacrifice. Nowhere. Look at it. Every blood sacrifice is only a reference to animals. And so when Jesus is called the perfect sacrifice, he is. But it's not that his blood atoned for our sin. It's not that his blood was meant to appease some divine wrath. Jesus' sacrifice was necessary. It was needed, but it was a different kind of sacrifice. Jesus needed to sacrifice his life. Not to appease divine wrath, but to indict human sin. Jesus needed to endure violence, not to pay a blood debt to God, but to expose the bankruptcy of worldly systems. Jesus needed to shed his blood, not in order to take punishment from God, but to overcome the attacks of Satan. Jesus needed to enter into death, not because God needed to destroy some people, but because God needed to destroy death. The true God, unlike all bloodthirsty gods of the past, does not desire death, but life. And the true temple, the one not made by human hands, is actually bloodless. It is a place, a holy place without any death and flows from it is the life of the resurrected Christ and it is for him Apollo says whom we eagerly await friends hear this good news if you've ever worried about how God feels about you that you thought that perhaps God wanted to smite you but was only prevented from doing so because Jesus got in God's way that Jesus took the punch 
that was thrown at you? Please, don't worry about that anymore. A God that wants to hurt you because you've done something bad is not God. That is a false God, a holdover from paganism and our own human trauma. We have conflated the character of God with the effects of sin for far too long. Sin is what harms. God is who heals. Sin is what is punishing. God is who is merciful. Sin is what brings death. God is who brings life. And you put your trust in the one who appeared once and for all to put away sin and give us life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. And um, y'all, today is the reason why guest pastors are terrified of our Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> y'all are sending Y'all were very nice to Anita last week, though. Yes, I appreciate it. They are not nice to you. Okay. Is there a particular atonement theory that you agree with and to what extent? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have an old Bible study on this one. So I actually like all atonement theories. I even like penal substitution theory and satisfaction theory. I think they all have something to say about what Jesus did on the cross. Um, so I, I, don't, uh, I don't reject those. I reject those in the form of the blood sacrifice component, but I think there's some elements that are worthwhile in, in pondering. But my personal favorite right now in my life is called recapitulation theory, which is basically Jesus is the new Adam. He's the perfect humanity that goes in our place and does this kind of restart. And then particularly on the cross, Jesus enters into death in order to destroy death. And this is actually the view, I would say, of the church in the fourth and third century. This was predominant. Um, and so it's, it's, I mean, used to clean cliche metaphor. It's like when Neo goes into the Matrix finally at the end of the first movie, right? He, be, he becomes part of the system and then he controls and destroys the system. It's, it's very, that's very much how they talk about Jesus entering into death. Um, so yeah, I know pastors and Matrix metaphors, sorry. But that's the one I like. I like that one a lot. I'll talk more about it later. Yeah, amazing. I'm flabbergasted. Okay. How do we reconcile God's justice with his mercy? Okay, so this is something if you grew up in evangelical culture that often gets pitted against one another. Like, God is just, and then God has mercy, and God has to figure out how to make the two work. And it's like really, really hard for God. Um, I do believe God is a God of justice, and that's why I still believe in, in penal substitution theory to an extent. However, I think a lot of times God's justice is actually shockingly expressed in God's mercy. And so when we see God's mercy, it's actually saying, God is saying, this is my justice in my mercy, and I want that to transform things. So I don't think there is um, um, pitted against one another as we've often been led to believe. I often think that mercy is an extension of God's justice. Nicely put. All right, last one. Were we wrong for singing those bloody songs at Parkside? <laughs> no, because this is what, still, the blood of Jesus is still totally fine. You, you heard it in this last song. I love this last song that we sang, Seen of Darkness. Um, but you'll notice that in the blood language there, um, it's not God being like, I'm taking the blood of Jesus because I'm angry, right? Like, that, that's a, Jesus did shed his blood, uh, but just not for the reasons of God being upset at us. Um, so I think it's okay to still sing those songs, and I think even if those songs maybe might be slightly problematic in terms of theology, I think there's still uh, a spiritual and emotional touch to them. Um, but you will notice, actually, I think our last song today, right, we, we do change some of the lyrics of the very last line to make it a little more theologically orthodox. So you, you may notice that, and you might be thrown off by that, but just, you know, that was that was intentional so uh no you can keep singing them it's fine but we just want to be intentional and aware when we do nice well well done Colin these were tough and you get to focus some more on the ones the extra hard ones uh he will answer tomorrow on Facebook live make sure you like Parkside on Facebook watch the uh Q&A as he finishes up um as the kids come in help help them find their parents and let's continue with worship awesome Thanks, Sam. Friends, now let us stand and join our voices together as we sing the Sanctus and prepare for communion.